So spring is in the air. I'm thinking spring is in the air, man. It's almost March, and spring appears to be getting ready to sprung. It snowed at my house yesterday, and then it was like 55 degrees, so... 55 is like about 6 degrees centigrade, right? Something like that? I don't Ish. know. Ish? It's 55. Yeah, it's 6 or 7. 10. I yeah, maybe. Uh, whatever. It's enough that uh, it's enough that you don't want to go out carousing without a shirt. You don't want to do that. <laughs> I typically don't carouse shirtless, but... Nor do I. Sometimes, maybe. I to the know. benefit of the human race. So, <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm George Tekmachov with Steve the... Big Cat. Anderson, and we're back for Easton Podcast number... 24! <laughs> did we do that last time? Was it 23? No, did we do our, our normal intro last yeah, time? Yeah, we, we, we did. Okay. It was just so uh, seamless that uh, we forgot about it. Don't even have to think anymore. Didn't have to think anymore. Hey, everybody. Um, there's been some developments in the last few days headed up to the uh, World Championship, the Indoor World Championship that's going to take place in Ankara, Turkey, starting at the uh, end of... Uh, this week going into next week practice starting on the 28th of february and um some of those developments involve members of the american team huh steve yeah like most of them not, not going. going yeah what's up with that <laughs> so all the uh all the men's compound shooters uh, decided to all three go. yeah all three. Oh, uh jesse Braden, and bridger deaton yeah so Braden announced it on facebook a few days ago and um then jesse uh yesterday i guess he told you about that yeah. And Bridger's the latest, huh? Uh, yeah, I think he was already there, too. I just hadn't heard. Mm. But, yeah, all three gone. And in their place will be Rio Wild and Matt Sullivan. And there's no third. Well, I'll be there. You just strap up I'll a go compound. borrow a bow. There you go. <laughs> How hard can it be? <laughs> you may as well. I mean, they need a third, right? How hard can it be? I can announce and I can shoot at the same time. Just wear a headset. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen. But uh, you know I'm joking, of course. I'm just a recurve shooter. There's no way I could just pick up a compound and start shooting tens. Well, nines, could, nines, though. You I could, could shoot pick nines. it up and shoot it better than the third guy who's not there. True enough. At least we'd have a fighting chance. Yeah. Oh, well, what are you going to do? So, yeah, um, any 411 on exactly why these guys decided not to go? Is it really because of the uh, incident that took place, or is there other stuff happening? Yeah, I think it's just a matter of they don't feel it's worth it to go and I, I guess Rio feels it's worth it. Rio Rio does. I think I guess the rest of them feel that this world championships isn't doesn't weigh as heavily as, you know, maybe some people would weigh it. Maybe uh, so, but they, you know they don't think it's that big of a tournament for them to go do something like that, you know. Mm, interesting thought. Well, uh personally I think that uh it's a shame that we're not gonna have the top American qualifiers there, but and, I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if some of the other guys that are going, like PJ and, and those guys, they feel the same way. I, I think you'd like to be up against the very best of the best, the ones who've made the team. Yeah, definitely. Not that Rio Wild is any slouch, by the way. He's certainly, you know, very capable. And uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's quite a alternate insert, yeah, you know. Heck of an alternate. And they had to go down a couple people, I guess. They must have uh, talked to at least two people in between or one person in between um, before they got to Rio. Uh, there was one, yeah, there was uh, Dan Yaza. Yeah. was the was the alternate okay. he declined huh and then rio took it and then um well you want to keep in mind here you know no it's okay we don't need to go down that american centric no list, it's just but. it's just funny that you know they went down the list and they couldn't find a third uh-huh but you know the thing is you got to pay for this trip if you're a compound shooter right true yeah and also i'll bet if you're a recurve shooter you got to pay for it too uh, yeah it's a fully funded trip for or, excuse me a fully oh, self-funded self trip uh, <laughs> yeah 
paid for by Steve Anderson Incorporated. Yeah, it's not going to be um, the same as going to an outdoor world where there's a bigger, shall we say, brass ring to grab. You know, USAA, uh, in the case of the uh, American Federation, USAA has a really good reason to pay for the recurve shooters going to Copenhagen right. this past summer, you know, and, and that is, of course, uh, winning Olympic slots, which, you know, you get to the Olympic Games, that's a $600,000 nut for USAA if there's if there's a couple of medals in there. So there's a big incentive to make sure that we have a full team. But with indoor, no, unfortunately. Yeah, indoor doesn't mean anything. No, Well, it does to the people shooting it for sure, but not to the federations. I guess you could say to a lot of people it doesn't mean enough to get you there. Yeah, well, apparently <laughs> this time there's any sort of, you know, potential for danger. Yeah, well, you know, danger is my middle name. That's why I'm going. So. Yeah, it crossed my mind to go. I mean, it was they have no third, so I could – I didn't even participate in trials, but I'm pretty sure I could probably just go. Yeah, I saw you. Uh, at, so, you went as far as looking for for ticket prices, and they were. I did. I had pretty very, reasonable too. Very reasonable tickets, but I got the 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 real boss lady said no. Mrs. So, Anderson said yeah, no. Yeah, she put the kibosh to it. Because if she can't go, you're not going. I'll bet that's what it is. Uh, she, <laughs> and the same deal for Mexico, right? I mean, she they're said not, I'm too gringo. Oh. <laughs> no, seriously though, the Mexican team's not going because of funding, right? Same deal. Um. Yeah, they don't fund indoor world. It. They're weird. You never know what the Mexican Federation is going to do. You know, there was some issues with corruption there, and alleged, now they have alleged, no money. Yeah, yeah. You <laughs> know, I, I, I'll tell you. I mean, you know, not to get into the not to get into the weeds with this whole deal with the Mexican Federation, but uh, you know, a while back we had Ida Roman. You know, at our grand opening of our archery center down in uh, San Diego, and just a few days before that, there had been some big story in the Mexican newspapers about. You know, the fight that she's having to try to get funded properly and to get support and, you know, the whole deal with the bureaucracy down there. It's just, uh, it's awful. Now, we're a lot better off up here, I think, in that regard. Yeah, I mean, at least it's pretty cut and dry. You know you're getting funded or not. Yeah, relatively speaking. <laughs> so, um, Archery.org, uh, the World Archery website, is finally starting to run some stories leading up to the indoor worlds. So uh, Chris Wells did a great story about uh, the para-archer Miss Sarti from Italy. She's going to be representing Italy for the world indoors, uh, and she's already slotted for the Paralympic Games in Rio, so that's a great story there. And last night, uh, for those of us in the United States, was the big show about Matt Stutzman on HBO, oh, uh, yeah. Real Sports. Real Sports. Which was um, you know, quite an interesting thing. I mean, uh, Matt, the armless archer, as he'd like to call himself, and the inspirational archer, as the powers that be make sure that he calls himself. <laughs> Matt, uh, I, I don't know if Matt listens to the show, but I hope you got a chuckle out of that one, Matt. Um, you know, Matt comes across on TV really well. And uh, I, I, I'm proud to say that he uh, is a great representative for our sport. On, so you watched it? I didn't watch the oh, thing. Okay. I watched the trailer. The trailer? I, yeah, I didn't watch it, but being that they filmed it at Vegas and he and I were on the same target and they, they probably – featured a lot of me saying stupid things or whatever you know so normal i'm sure there was but, some of that <clears throat> yeah i think uh I, I should probably watch it to see just how much damage i did myself well no i i yeah i, I think it's worth watching I, they they, re, they will replay it right i mean yeah i'm sure it'll eventually come to uh some type of online viewing or you know if you have hbo now or hbo so, or something um, like that yeah so this is in the uh, public uh, domain um so i'm kind of okay with us uh kind of Borrowing this, this is the audio for the trailer of Matt's show. 
may not look like Super Bowl 50 to you, but to everyone here, this is the real thing. The 50th Super Bowl of archery. They just showed a shot of uh, Sergio shooting his uh, 3, of the best firearms, the fireworks. Representing more than 50 countries, from Japan to Mexico, even the national team from Iran is here. But one of the men in the running to win it all is an American, 33-year-old Matt Stutzman, the seventh-ranked archer in the country, but not remotely satisfied with that. My goal is to be the best archer in the world. If I have a good day, I feel that I can beat everyone in this room. He's come close before. Here at the championships, each archer gets 90 shots at the target. And last year, Stutzman hit bullseyes on 89 of them. 89 out of 90, all while racing the clock. Not bad for a guy who was born without arms. And that's where they first show him with no arms. yields nothing to his so-called handicap. Living a life where seemingly nothing is out of bounds. He's as comfortable jumping into a pool as he is hustling an unsuspecting reporter at pool. He gets around town in a big truck, unmodified, of course. If he gets a flat, no need to call a tow He just changes the tire himself. NASCAR people, watch out. Even eating lunch out is no big deal. Thank you. So you do is you put the bread down. Yeah, you put the egg on top. So you can balance it on there. Stutzman, you see, has never known it any other way. He was born this way, but to this day doesn't know why because his parents gave him up for adoption after just a few months. It's an amazing story that Matt Stutzman has, and, you know, I kind of take it for granted that he hangs out with us every once in a while, you know? Yeah, for real. I mean, dude is amazing, truthfully. Yeah, yeah no joke. I mean, yeah, you watch him drive up in that truck, and he steps out of that thing. I pity the traffic patrolman that pulls him over for speeding. He's got a great story about that, actually. He does indeed. Yeah, yeah. it's totally not fit for us to share, nor can we deliver it how he does. No, because he's got it down. Yeah. But it's a great story. If you ever run into uh, Matt, make sure he tells you the story of getting pulled over. Yeah, yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah, awesome guy. So um, Matt uh, now, I would say, has as much exposure among American TV sports enthusiasts as anybody you've heard of from the NBA or from you know, golf or some of those other things, at least for the next uh, few days as, as the HBO Real Sports thing. Now, you you got a couple of stories to tell about the experience of having those guys running around down there while you were shooting. Yeah, thankfully, Matt and I were on different lines because, you know, when you get a camera up in your face or in, I guess in this case it's behind your face, but it's not always fun to do that, you know, especially when you're just trying to get in a groove and shoot at Vegas. So, But they were down there. They did a great job. They, you know, they – Number one, I said, anyone here who complains about these guys being in the way needs to take a hike because we are too small to not welcome the As press a sport, yeah. in any form yeah, of we fashion. Yeah, we got to welcome any kind yeah. of mainstream press like that. Open yeah. arms. Yeah, so I asked those guys, I said, have you had any issues with people complaining? And they said, no, everyone's been pretty good, minus a few people. But anyhow, they, uh, I mean, totally professional. They, they just said, hey, you know, can we get some clips out of you guys, some sound bites, stuff like that? Um so without having seen the show, I'm pretty excited to see what all they took from us. So you know, they actually, you know, they wanted a clip from me and um, knowing it's HBO and knowing you can get away with a little more on there. Yeah. I said a swear word. Ooh. Yeah. So 
All right. Well, I'll have it, to watch this yeah, thing now. I slipped it in there. Yeah. Did, did you find out whether it made it to air? I'm sure it did. Okay, then. All right. We'll find out. <laughs> we will indeed. So, uh, yeah, pretty cool stuff. Uh, great exposure for the sport of archery from our friend Matt Stutzman. Uh, you know, every once in a while, like uh, once a week or so, I, I look at social media and uh, this past week I saw a thread that some goober started on Archery Talk. <laughs> he's he's bitching about the fact <laughs> that that Brady and who else was it? Oh, and um, uh, John Charles Zaladant and our friend from Mexico, Juan Rene Serrano, were filmed by the uh, you know the uh, the Archery TV guys. Mm-hmm. They put together some little gag reels at some of these events, right? Right. Yeah. So this particular gag reel, the Archery Fan Reporter thing. They had Brady and uh, John Charles and uh, Juan Rene. Juan Rene. They had them take their stuff off their bows. Oh yeah. And shoot bare bow, you know, thirty meters or whatever, into a one twenty two uh, with a twenty second limit to get off as many arrows as they could. And they're they're scattering from hell to breakfast, as you might imagine. And these people are on freaking social media bitching about it, making making comments about how they're making bare bow look bad. They aren't barebow archers, bro. I, I was I was like, really? Where's your sense of humor? It was meant to be funny. No one has a sense of humor on the internet. Everything is hundred oh, percent serious and true. People, unbelievable. It's like get a freaking life. All right, I'm done now. <laughs> I'm done. I'm done. Oh, um, the schedule for uh, the schedule for this world indoor. This is uh, daunting because we've got you remember we got juniors there too, right? Plus teams. A lot of stuff going on, so we'll uh, we'll look forward to that one. There is a lot of stuff happening. There, there. is a ton. Yeah, you know. And uh, let's see, we have thirty three percent more recurve shooters at the World Indoor than we have compound shooters when you total it all up. I'm kind of surprised by that because there's a lot of recurve teams not going. Yes, it is a surprise. I agree with you. Um, but some of the teams that are going have more recurves in them than compounds, it seems. And there are more countries only setting recurves and compounds it's kind of strange because it is just before you know olympic time uh, i know a number of countries right now are starting to lock down their plans for where they're going to stage for the rio games um japanese team coming here for example right here to salt lake city to the eastern center and uh we're just getting word that a number of these teams are also getting ready for um final selection for people that are going to represent them in in the final qualifying tournament no pressure there yeah we should uh we should talk about what goes into you know staging for the games Mm, yeah i think a lot of people probably don't understand you know for instance when i go to a world cup i usually get there sunday you know you fly overnight saturday yep and then you arrive it's the next day it's sunday you've traveled for 17 to 24 hours and maybe 15 time zones because if you go to shanghai from here it's 16 time zones yeah that one's always a fun one yeah so, so here's so the rule of thumb and yeah you have one day to practice well you might have you have monday and tuesday as practice days and then you got to be ready to go on wednesday and you're hoping your gear all showed up that too okay so here's the deal for the olympic games which is somewhat bigger deal than world cup somewhat arguably <laughs> For the Olympic Games, a lot of teams are going to spend at least one day per time zone change hour. So if you're eight hours ahead. You're going to get there at least a week and a day ahead of time. Right. And if you're 16 hours difference, like Japan. They'll get there two weeks early. Uh Uh-huh. That's the plan. 
So, you know, the the smarter the team or the more well-funded the team, the more preparation time they get to put in. And they want to try to make the preparation do two things for them. Bolster their athletes' confidence, get them peaking at the right time. So they're not going to be doing any 400-pound, you know, uh, bench presses. (laughs) And at the same time, get their body clock more or less in sync. Mm-hmm. We're about an hour difference from Rio de Janeiro up here in Salt Lake City from the standpoint of the time zone. And so because of the facility that's available here, as opposed to the facilities are you know not readily available in, in Brazil, mm-hmm. a number of teams are looking at coming here or staging in San Diego mm-hmm. for the purpose of acclimatization, acclimatization for the Olympic Games. And, uh, and that's, uh, that's the plan. And so a number of teams are doing that. Yeah, it's got to be hugely advantageous, more so mentally than it is, you know, on the body clock. Yeah, you can you can shoot tired. It's not that hard. But what you can't do is be overwhelmed by the fact that you're at the freaking Olympics. There's a lot happening. Yep. Opening ceremonies comes like the day. I think opening ceremonies is on qualification day. Mm-hmm. Um, Our sport is always the earliest. Yeah. So in fact, most most archers don't get to go to the opening ceremony, especially if they've. If it's not their first Olympics, most archers skip the opening ceremony. Right. They've been there, done that. They need mm-hmm. to be focused. So, yeah. yeah but, there, I mean, there's a lot happening. It'd be nice to be there for two weeks and just be accustomed to staring at the same stuff, seeing the same things, and, and not being, you know, not having to take anything in after a while. You, you take it all in that first week. You get, you know, the, the excitement out of you, and then it's just back to work. Yeah. And there are, you know, there are some people who are concerned about spending a lot of time down there because of what's going on with, uh, you know, the mosquito-borne pathogens and some other stuff that people are starting to worry about. But, you know, in the big scheme of things, I think it'll be okay. Yeah, they'll, every Olympics has, you know, oh. its crisis before. Listen, I've been to six Olympics, and every single one of them, it's the same story. Yeah. It's going to be a disaster. You won't be able to get from A to B. You're not going to be able to get food. You're not going to be able to get water. You're not going to be able to... No, they all work out. The media needs something to write about. You know, right? I remember my first Olympics was Barcelona back in 92. And uh, when you were, what, four years old? Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> after five hours in line, five hours in line to pick up my uniform, I get to the head of the line. And they're like, we don't have your name here, sir. <laughs> and I'm like, mm, really? And then uh, I had a flash of inspiration and realized that in Spanish culture, what you and I think of as your middle name is your family name. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. And I found they found me under my my given middle name, right? So that all worked out. But yeah, that was a that was a smooth Olympics, relatively speaking. Then we had Atlanta, and people were talking about how horrible it was going to be in Atlanta. Atlanta was fine for archery. What was their concern there? Oh, transportation was going to be a problem. There were going to be problems with the heat. Oh, there were yeah. going to be problems with the weather. Uh, there were worries about uh, terrorism at the time. For some reason, we had we had snipers in the trees. We had guys from special forces, American special forces in the trees up there. And of course, unfortunately, Atlanta did have a tragic bombing incident. Right. Which really kind of changed the atmosphere of the games Mm -hmm. for us. But nothing affected archery. Um, And then we had, uh, you know, Sydney in 2000. Anybody who lives in in, uh, Australia might remember that the predictions were that it was going to be a huge traffic problem and it was going to be a tremendous issue from the standpoint of logistics and you wouldn't be able to move around and blah, blah, blah. And it was perfect. It was probably one of the best, I'd say second best Olympics I've been to. So if they can't figure out an infrastructure or people problem, they blame the the traffic. Yeah, exactly. But Sydney was fine. Sydney was awesome, actually. And then uh, we had 
Athens. And, you know, I will tell you this, meaning my mother's Greek. So I know Greek culture. I've spent a lot of time over there. And um, even I expected things not to go so well because I know the Greeks. I are one. And I can tell you that was just fine. The, the, the uh, Athens Olympics were fine. And then, you know, the Beijing Olympics were, were run like clockwork. Uh, everybody was worried about air pollution. And, yeah, the air wasn't great, but it was a well-run event. And then finally we had London. Everybody's predicting doom and gloom in London. Oh, you're going to have problems with this. You're going to have problems with that. You're going to have problems getting around. You're not going to be able to get transport. Beers are going to cost 12 pounds apiece. The only thing that turned out to be true was the beer price. Everything else was great. London was awesome. London was awesome. So I'm, I'm confident Rio's going to be fine. And I'm, I'm beginning to see people predicting bad stuff for Japan. Yeah, well, as it asked, what, what do you think they'll, oh, they'll well, go Oh, well, it's going to go over budget. It's going to be too expensive. It's going to be too hot that time of year. Okay, I'll vouch for the too hot that time of year. I agree with that. But the rest of it, if anybody does a good job with the Olympics, it's going to be Japan. Right, yeah, I can't... I, just knowing the the Japanese people I do know, I can't foresee that one. Not it's going to be awesome. awesome. So, all right. So anyway, enough of that for now. Yeah. Well, Except congratulations. You're going to be working the equipment repair booth at Rio. Yeah, I will be in Rio. So I will be getting the Zika virus and no, you will not. No, no, no. Come on. <laughs> Stop that. If anyone's going to do it, it's going to be me. You'll, you'll attract the mosquitoes. <laughs> you'll, you'll protect the rest of the team. No, it'll be, uh, I'm looking forward to it. Doug Denton and I from Hoyter going and yeah, we're doing the, uh, the equipment booth, so I think you're gonna love it. We'll see. Be my first games. Be your second, third equipment repair booth, though. Correct. You got plenty of experience in the equipment repair booth. Correct. Actually, you got a lot of experience sitting around in the equipment repair booth because generally there's not much to do. Uh, there's some. The equipment repair booth has some funny stories, you know. But yeah, yeah but, but a, what what did we do in Copenhagen working the equipment repair booth more than anything else was working on other stuff than bows. Yeah, it was spotting scopes. Putting together spotting scopes, and um, and I don't remember what else, but there was all kinds of stuff that was not directly related to archery stuff. Yeah, people want you to fledge their arrows, and you go take a hike, you know. <laughs> well, no, you hand them the bits and burger and some glue and say, have a nice day. <laughs> yeah, bring this back. Yeah, uh, the, the repair booth is, uh, it's interesting. I mean, when I was in, uh, when I did it in Bellic at the 2013 World Championships, we had we had a guy who needed to build strings and we had, you know, reserve some stuff and nothing crazy, you know, but it's a, it's funny because a lot of people will bring you their equipment and want you to tune their bow. They showed up at the world championships and their bows not tuned. Yeah. Is that the implication? Yeah. There was a shooter who wanted me to align his limbs and I'm not a recurve guy, but you know, well, you time, are now my time working at Hoyt. I knew how to align limbs and things like that. And yeah, it's pretty freaking easy. So, yeah. I lined his limbs, and then he felt totally confident in his equipment. And he went on and, and did very well. So He went on and continued to get stomped by Koreans. <laughs> well, that's a whole different <laughs> ballgame. And by the way, I never noticed a Korean come up to me at any of these events and say, hey, can you line my bow for me? Not they, once. They, you know, oh Jin Hyuk, they don't he, care. When he, no, that's they the point. They just shoot. That's, that's it, right? They realize that that stuff doesn't matter so much. Nope, bow repeats itself. Yeah. Uh, speaking of social media, uh, this week uh, our friend Andy McDonald over in uh, in Oz, I don't know if he started it, but I, I think he uh, kind of like he likes to do. He he kind of stirred it up. It's a it's a discussion of a competitor arrow and some problems a guy had with a competitor arrow and how the the arrows had they're all carbon and they had uh, failed and it has to do with the way the guy installed his points. Common problem. Yeah. Well, not necessarily. Depends upon 
which arrows you're shooting and how you're putting on in the points. Well, here's here's yeah. the thing. Yeah, and we're going to spend a few minutes talking about this subject of point installation, mm-hmm. right? And we're going to make a video. Yeah, yes, indeed we are. Um, point installation is a fundamental skill that people in this industry probably take for granted, but the average person out there probably doesn't know how to do it as well as they could or do it right, right? So what's the number one problem you see? The number one problem I see is too much heat. Yeah, they they overheat it. They want to hold it in pliers. Hold the point in pliers. That's the number one mistake people make. So uh, step by step, what is the the steps that you want to take when you want to when you want to install your points. We'll just walk you through this verbally, but we're going to make a video for you. And, and we're going to make a video with no words. That's right. A yeah. video with no words because I'm inspired by something that uh, that my sports cam manufacturer did to explain certain things. So we're going to make sure we do this so anybody from any culture can watch this thing and understand it. So first thing I do. I cut my arrows first. Yes. Do you cut them from the front, back, or the middle? I cut mine from the front because <laughs> I shoot X10s. And then I deburr them. I always like the front, back, or middle. That's my favorite. Then I like to take a pipe cleaner and clean the dust that I've created by cutting them. A little, a little isopropyl alcohol. I don't even bother with that. I do just because with a small diameter arrow, a lot of dust can get in there and it... Uh, incrementally decreases the strength of the bond. You don't bother, and I suggest that you don't need to bother because when you push the point in there, the hot melt glue pushes the dust, but I'm just that way. Might as well. I'm old school. Yeah. Pipe, got, pipe cleaner yeah. is a, a good thing for that, or you take a Q-tip, you know, a cotton swab, Pull and you remove some of, the, some of the cotton until it gets in there, and then you just clean it out. No so big deal. My first move with the point in hand, in hand is... I just burn the funk off, I call it. So I just run it through the flame, the shank through the flame for like literally a half second. Put it in, pull it out. Okay. And then from there, I heat up the hot melt. Okay. Apply the hot melt to the shank. Finish. Well, it's nice to put a little dab of hot melt on the end of the arrow. Just a little dab. Okay. So let me back you up. Before you do all that, I like to take the parts cold and make sure they fit. Just to check. I've never had a problem, but... Might as well. I don't want to run into a problem halfway through trying to install a point. Right. So why not? Yep. Back in my day, (laughs) I used to take the parts and weigh them before I put them together and get them to within a tenth of a grain until I realized that that was really stupid. Yeah. If I'm within three grains total arrow weight, it's going to still hit the same spot. I'm pretty darn happy <laughs> with uh, with one grain that I typically get when I throw yeah, my... Yeah, without having to do anything, I always come out to one grain. Yeah. And so, you know, so go on. You were so, burning the funk off. Yeah, burn the funk. So all you're doing is you're just running the you're running the point through the flame. And you know what you're doing by doing that. Maybe you don't even know, but... Uh, Pulling off oils and stuff. Yeah, if there's any machining oils or more commonly, because this stuff gets pretty clean. We're talking eastern parts here. Um, the bags, the, the plastic bag, the plastic bag has a anti-static treatment and that anti-static treatment can, you know, it's meant to allow the bag to open when the machine dumps the parts Drops in, it there. in that can, that can be like a, uh, it can be a little waxy kind of thing, you know, and you want to clean that off. So you might want to go to the point of even cleaning the components with alcohol, but it's not necessary. If you're concerned. Yeah. Yeah. Your step of running it through the flame. That's fine. Yep. So I do that, apply the... And mind you, just you know, just swipe it through the flame. Don't hold don't it there. Don't hold it there. Yeah. Apply the hot melt. Now, I like um, to warm up the hot melt in the flame. 
That's yeah. I hold the hot melt in the flame, then apply it to the shank of the point. Right. Uh, from there, usually put the shank just briefly back into the flame. That'll heat it Still up. Still holding in your fingers. Yeah, because by then it's probably cooled enough. Uh, and then you can just insert into the, the arrow. I like to rotate it when I'm inserting in the arrow. Yep, rotate, insert, and then maybe apply a little more heat, mm-hmm. push it in. And then immediately clean up. Yep. If there's a bead of glue, clean it up with some paper towels or yeah. something. You don't want to let – that's <clears throat> most of the issues I see are people who let the glue ring cool off on the arrow. They've gotten it too hot anyway, so the glue is freaking piping hot sits on the carbon for long enough to create damage and a really good and, and a really bonds. good bond yeah and then as they pull the glue away they can pull carbon away it pulls too. carbon off yeah yep. it creates cracks i see it once in a while well it looks like cracks it's not actual cracks it's uh discontinuities we'll call it in the surface cracks would go all the way through in this case you're talking about surface damage right well i've seen it yeah it, if you get it super hot yeah of course it you does can damage. cause other damage yeah. <laughs> so what was the key to what we do? We hold, well, The key to what we do is we can hold the point in our hand. We never get it so hot. Now, it's tricky to do this with a tungsten point because the tungsten point heats up really... Actually, it doesn't heat up any faster, but it actually transmits the heat faster, a couple times faster than a steel point. So with a tungsten point, um, you got to work quick. And if it gets too hot, put the thing down, let it cool down, and start over. Yep. Um, one thing that Steve alluded to but didn't elaborate on was I like to put a little ring of melted glue inside the arrow before I put the point in there. And just so I'm pushing a uh, ring of glue ahead of the component. And then the other thing that you didn't hear us talk about was we don't go stick them in cold water to cool off. No. Put them point down and let them cool off naturally. And because we don't want to shock that newly formed glue joint. We don't want to shock it thermally and potentially draw water into the joint or cause other issues. So, you know, by doing it this way, um, you can ensure that you will, by the way, using Easton Hot Melt, uh, have a good bond. Um, what are we leaving out here? Oh, yeah, if you have any extra glue on the extra uh, external surface after you've wiped it off, maybe you didn't wipe it off thoroughly enough or it got chilly or whatever, methyl ethyl ketone or acetone, either one of those two will dissolve the glue that might be on the surface. Interesting. Yeah. So, uh, in fact, uh, pretty pretty good chance of cleaning it up with denatured alcohol as well. And I wouldn't dip the arrow into it, right? You would just put yeah. it on a rag and... Yeah. That stuff's pretty strong. You'd, you'd be amazed what you can get away with on an Easton... I'm being specific to Easton here because that's what I know. Uh, on an Easton AC or uh, Easton C2 style arrow, you know, like a carbon one. Mm-hmm. You can get away with a lot, but, um, you know. So, here's the deal. We're talking about AC arrows when we're talking about using hot melt for installation. Yes, you can install points in a C2 arrow, like a carbon one, using hot melt if you follow very strictly the instructions I just mentioned, specifically holding the point in your hand when you heat it up. I'm not talking about burning yourself here. Common sense applies. Big big boy rules, right? But yeah, you can use Easton hot melt on a C2 arrow, and if you are smart about it, you can make it work. Otherwise, the official instructions are use a slow set epoxy, 24-hour epoxy. If you have any doubts, the epoxy is always the right way to go. Also, on the opposite end, if you're using point, uh, excuse me, if you're using pin knocks, don't slather the thing in glue. Tiny, tiny, tiny drop of glue is all you need on the pin knock pin, on the knock pin itself. You don't want any glue on the on the part that goes in the knock, of course. No glue on the plastic. No glue on the plastic. No, no glue needed. Press fit. Yep. Yep. 
Okay, so um, as usual, of course, we will entertain listener questions here at podcast at eastontp.com. We have a special uh, email address that is specifically set up for that purpose, podcast at eastontp.com. We've got some listener questions that we're going to address right now. you got one right there, Steve. i got one right here, yep. Uh, says, I'm a compound shooter. My question regards eye dilation and seeing around the scope housing in low light situations. Um, so, yeah, when you're... Obviously, you go outside on a bright, sunny day, your peep will appear to be smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, conversely, you go to an indoor range that's poorly lit, and your peep will appear to be larger. So what I tend to like to do is if I'm going to be shooting indoors, I find the brightest range and I fit that I'm going to be shooting in, and I fit my peep size to my housing around that. Um, the bright situation. Around the bright situation, yep, because I want to be able to see the ring when my peep appears smallest. Uh, usually you go to Neem and Vegas. Neem, Neem seems to be one of the – the targets are well lit. The shooting line is not. It's a dark venue at the shooting line, which is fine. I'd rather Especially have Especially in the finals. I'd rather ha- Yeah, I'd rather have the targets well lit. I could care less about the shooting line. Um, so there I might see a little more – I might see a little airspace around my scope housing. Totally okay with that. That's fine. Your eye naturally will center the ring inside your peep. So unless you just have some sort of issue. <laughs> and you should notice that. I mean, you should notice if, hey, I'm always, you know, hanging out on the left side of my peep here. What's up? And if that's an issue, then maybe, yeah, you need to carry some peep inserts and put a new one in specific to the range. But and I've done that. But I've never noticed so big of a variance that I felt it was completely necessary. So, how does the use of a clarifier affect any of this, if at all? Um, indoors, I don't think it makes a huge difference. Outdoors, huge difference. I don't like a clarifier in the sun. Changing light conditions really affect how light enters that peep and refracts off a clarifier lens. So, so your choice is not to use a clarifier. No clarifier, yeah. But the woman who shot the highest score in the world uses a clarifier. And also has had issues that cost her gold Big medals. ones, yeah. Big issues. In the rain. <laughs> yeah, in yeah. the rain. Yeah. Um, flat light, a clarifier is awesome. Changing light, not so great. Flat light's awesome for, for recurves, too. Yeah. For same reasons. So, but, you know, um, indoor, like I said, indoors, cl- clarifier, fine. Outdoors, not so great. And outdoors, I do the same thing. On a bright day, that's where I pick my peep size. Uh, regarding the dilation of your eyes, yeah, there's, I mean, there'd be times where your eyes feel fuzzy or, or just have a hard time adjusting to the light. And that's kind of a pain really. I don't know how to deal with that other than maybe some eye drops or something just to refresh your eyes. I don't know if that would be good, bad, who knows, but uh, I would say that the best thing to do is to be aware of the fact that it will affect things and then go out and practice in various conditions and note what happens. Yeah. With recurves, the same thing happens. Um, you know, let's back in the days of the four distance feet of if you shot one in one day, for example, you'd be at 30 meters in the afternoon. You'd start out 90 meters in the morning. Sometimes the sun would be almost in your face, depending on the orientation mm-hmm. of the field. But by the afternoon, you know, the sun would be at your back and you'd be looking at uh, lower light condition overall. And you'd be wondering, why am I shooting left all of a sudden if you're a right handed shooter? Mm-hmm. And the reason is because you perceived your string differently because your eye dilated. Interesting. Yeah. So or you see the, the, the string, yeah, the light hits the string at a different angle all of that stuff yeah so it's just you gotta be aware of it you gotta be aware that it can happen and you need to be prepared for it so that you're not going hmm what am i doing 
Yeah. You need to immediately be able to, it's not that people don't make mistakes that are shooting the highest scores. It's that they identify how to fix them fastest. Yeah. They're ahead of the game. Before they give up too many points. <laughs> yep. So keep in mind that this stuff can happen. Yeah. Right. I, I have one range I shoot in, an indoor range here very often. And every time I go in there, my eyes feel fuzzy. So I don't know how you deal with it other than just dealing with it. Peep size will make a difference. If I'm, if I'm worried about lighting conditions, I want to have a bigger peep overall so that more light is getting through the peep into my eye. I remember back in 90, I'm thinking 92, um, shot Vegas at the Tropicana. I think it was the last time it was at the Tropicana. And that had the poorest light conditions of any of the Vegas shoots I have ever attended. And that particular year, they had this predominantly black target with a half-size multi-ring target in it. Some of you folks out there might remember what I'm talking about. Essentially, yeah, it was actually placed third that year. Very nice. Uh, for no specific reason other than luck, I guess. But um, that was a black target in a dark room. I mean, all you could see was that gold dot in the center. And it was only 10 ring size. Outside of that was like green or something. Yeah. If I remember right. In fact, that, uh, that ring was um, about the size of the current WA-10. Yeah. It was a weird deal. Real weird target. Yeah. The, the thing with the green you're thinking of is something else, actually. But anyways, the point is it had a black background, and you're in a dark room. A lot of people were unhappy. Yeah, everything darkens up yeah. at that point. But you need to be prepared for this stuff. You yep. know? Just be, again, be the fastest one to figure out a solution to the problem, and you'll lose the least points and finish ahead of the game. Yeah, you got to be reactive. Yep, all the time. Hello, Steve and George comes our next message from Sterling, who is uh, happy with the podcast. Thank you for that, Sterling couple of questions and would like to know what we have to say. First, what are the differences in types of fletching, veins versus feathers, and different lengths, and when should one type or size be used over another? So Sterling is a kind of a beginning archer. Um, let's first start out with the discussion of recurve, and then Steve will address compound with the same question. For recurve, when you're just starting out, feathers let you get away with a lot because you're not going to have a very consistent release from shot to shot potentially. Yeah, of course, if you're really talented or you have a good coach, you might get through that position of time more quickly, but most people, they're going to get you a few releases uh, when they're starting out. And a vein is going to be less forgiving, meaning it's going to hit the bow on the way out and throw itself off a lot further than a feather will. A feather will just lay down. On the other hand, veins are a lot more durable than feathers, all else being equal. Also, veins are less expensive than feathers. Feathers are great indoors, not so great outdoors. Feathers are not so great for wet weather. Now, for a compound, some compound folks, experienced ones, choose to use feathers indoors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you're having a bow, there's there's certain bows where you're just going to have issues with cable contact. In that situation, you're pretty much limited to feathers. Um, I always try to fletch left helical. That gives me the most clearance over my cables. You're a right-handed shooter. Yeah. As so it would be shooter. it would be opposite for a lefty. Yeah, they'd shoot. They'd do a right helical. Mm-hmm. Um, now you have to have if you're shooting feathers, you have to buy a specific. It's right wing or left wing, so you have to buy a specific feather to that left helical. And you have to use the right clamp in your jig if you're fletching yourself. Yeah. So um, personally, no issues with cable contact, and don't like fletching repeatedly. So I use veins. Okay. 
Next question from the same uh, inquiry. Uh, Sterling is looking at purchasing his first bow. Well, it could be her first bow. And wants to know what arrows you would recommend to start with. I am currently shooting recurve, but I'm thinking of switching to compound to participate in local 3D and field competitions. I'm finding the various options of weight overwhelming as a beginner. Yeah, I can imagine. Mm-hmm. So um, to try to answer that question, when you're developing Archer, cost is an important consideration because as your form develops and perhaps as your bow weight changes, you're going to want to change it. You're going to need to change arrows because the arrow is highly dependent on draw length, which you have kindly mentioned is 28 and a half. And uh, also the spine of the arrow, the weight of the bow, all that stuff comes into play. So I'm going to say go for something budget oriented. Aluminum arrows are a good start mm-hmm. for just about everybody. And I'm not talking about having to go all the way to X7s. Our double X75 Platinum Plus line, uh, as an example, is a really good way to go. Also, there's the Apollo Series arrows, which are a mid-priced carbon arrow. And below that even, the highly um, affordable Inspire arrows. Yeah, that's like, yeah, if you're looking for real beginner type stuff. Yeah, um, although they're actually quite good. Yeah, there's a, to, to recommend arrows is always how much money you want to spend you know mm-hmm. yeah but <clears throat> again I, I you know since they're asking yeah and i'm not a sales guy yeah my, my answer is going to be what you can afford yep keeping in mind you're that gonna you're going to change you're going to be changing mm-hmm. so that's first and foremost i mean mm-hmm. i make plenty of dumb mistakes and break arrows still beginners tend to make a lot more dumb mistakes and break a lot more arrows I wouldn't call so, them dumb mistakes. They're, a lot they're, more goes with the territory. Yeah, it, <laughs> you know, if you make that mistake, you might call it dumb. But I'll let you be the judge. Um, yeah, something something affordable and something that is simple enough to figure out. Light speed, the regular light speed, makes a great option there as well. Yeah, but that's a little more spendy, right? Yeah, around yeah, hundred bucks or so. I'm gonna I'm gonna dial this back to say double X seventy fives. Fair enough. All right. So hopefully, uh, Sterling, that answers your question. Thank you for that. Um, and you've got one more. I do have one more. Uh, a few episodes back, I mentioned a slow-mo camera for archery. Which one do I recommend? It's not crazy expensive. This question coming from Ryan Johnson. Um, I don't know exactly what I used in the past. There was, I think uh, there's a series Casio of Casio cameras yeah. out there. They go around seven, 800 bucks. I think. Oh, I think they're even cheaper now. Yeah, they've gotten cheaper. I have a Nikon 1J4. Real cool. It's a photo camera, but it, you can do extremely extremely slow-mo you know uh i don't remember what the frames per second is but it's enough you could you could see quite a bit of tuning stuff the issue is you only get a three second clip Mm -hmm. so you have to hit record and cut one loose you know about a second after and then you're going to watch that clip for like two minutes it's a three second actual time you're watching it for two minutes or something like that i don't yeah it's just a slice of time and it slows it down so much that the play time is much longer sure i'm not techie around that stuff i just push the button and take photos okay so let me ask you uh <laughs> we didn't rehearse this or talk about this in advance i want to know how do you use high speed video to help you as a re- as a compound shooter how do you how do you use that the the thing i actually found most beneficial was when i was at hoyt we would go up and we would put um we'd put white paper in our riser in the background so you can better see the contrast of the arrow what's happening uh, you record it directly from the side and you record the rest blade and you can see rest blade reaction. You can see how the arrow is actually coming up off the blade. If it is, if it isn't, um, there's, there's some interesting things to be seen. And then 
you know, if you want to take it a step further, you can record the shooter's face and the anchor point, and as they cut one loose, see what kind of oscillation you get there. There's uh, a lot of things you can check with it. I'll say what you what you do see in those videos may not be telling the whole story. You know, there's these bows and tuning and all that is complex and and very uh, hard to pinpoint one specific reason or another, but it's a good way of giving you a better idea of what's happening. Okay. I think that uh, for a recurve, what you're really looking for as much as anything else is uh, you're looking to see whether you're getting good clearance. Yep. That's the most useful thing that I find with high-speed video. So Ryan also asks uh, any training exercises for improving pin float. So he wants to know if there's something you can do to help steady your aim um, or get a more predictable aim. Yeah, let's pull this back for a second. Talk about the fact that pin float is something that is universal. Everybody's experiencing pin float, right? I mean, that's uh, it's part of the it's part of the process, right? Yeah, no one's just power aiming dead center axe ring. Not, maybe you have those days or those where you feel like ends. It. Yeah, where you feel like you are, but you know, it's also you want to improve pin float immediately. Go to a lesser magnification. <laughs> it's yeah. perceived, yeah, right, yeah. But um, to actually improve it, I mean, I, I really think the only way you can do it is shooting your bow a lot, you know, getting a lot of arrows in. And, and honestly, pin float to me is more directly tied in with the mind than any sort of physical training. You got to be strong and accustomed to shooting your bow. Like right now, I've, I've just started shooting again since Vegas, and today was easily some of the worst shooting I've ever shot. I could hit the 10, I could hit Xs, blah, 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 but it was disgustingly ugly. And I had some arrows that I won't have in a week, you know, just a matter of conditioning. So yeah, if you're conditioned and you've been shooting a lot, then you got, then your pin float really ties into the mind and your, how comfortable you are holding middle. A lot of people don't like to hold middle. They want to peek around or, or, you know, anticipate or hold low. There's, there's issues there. So, um, I find that when I get this question, even from compound shooters, that uh, one of my go-to recommendations is to change up the aperture, the nature of the aperture. Yeah. You can go from a dot to a halo or, or even uh, like a true spot scope. There's, it's, uh, there's a lot you can do, but you got to find what works best with your shot execution. Shot execution trumps aim every day. Um, so you got to figure out what works best with your execution. And from there you have to learn to be okay holding in the middle. So one, one thing I do when that's a struggle is just get close up five, 10 yards and just see the dot sitting in the middle of the 10 ring and see that for a long, long time and then cut loose an arrow, you know, that's, that's it. Yeah. Do that enough and you'll get accustomed to seeing it in the middle of the yellow at distance too. But part of this is the mental game that's coming into play. And, 100%. And, and that is going to require, in a lot of cases, a change in focus. I don't mean visual focus. I mean your mental focus. Yeah, you got to commit to it. I mean, like People who shoot a thumb button, and when I try to shoot a thumb button, it's not something I can do for a long time, but it's total commitment to the shot before I ever draw back the bow. Exactly. And it's... I think that's one reason I don't shoot one. It's more taxing for me. I have to really, I have to spend so much of my focus on the execution side of it that it, you know, that uh, the rest of the shot becomes 
you know, it, it enters into the background of my mind. And I'd make, rather have the execution side of my shop be automatic and do the rest, you know, think about the rest. But you have to be fully committed to following through with the shot before you pull up, especially mm-hmm. in an environment where you may have only 20 seconds to shoot. Yeah, there's a lot of visualization involved. And you're doing that all the time. It's not just once and then go on autopilot. You've got you to work at it. Yeah, there's years. There are times when. Years. You know, <laughs> I'll put it this way. The times when you don't need to work at it and it just kind of happens are few and far enough between for most people, not everybody, that it's memorable when it does. Right. It's memorable when it happens. Like, it's man, really cool. I was really shooting awesome at such and such range on that day. I, I want to find that feeling again. A lot of people chase that feeling with equipment and other things. It's not, you know, equipment's great. It's fun to play with. My bow has looked the exact same for 18 months. Got any events coming up? Yeah, we have our mail-in indoor nationals, which I will reluctantly participate in because it's in my backyard. (laughs) We were toying with the idea of setting you up with a recurve for that one. All right, but I forgot, you know, last year I won the, the Easton Award for, which has nothing to do with us. It's the award. The shooter of the year is yeah, what that is. The it's the person the with year. the highest performance in outdoor, indoor, and target. In outdoor, indoor, and, and field. field. Yep. And uh, for the recurves, it's known as the Schenk Award. It's named after Clayton Schenk. Which is an interesting name for... He was not a golfer. He shanked it out there. No, no, no. No, Clayton um, Shank was a president of the National Archery Association of the United States, a revered figure in our sport in the USA. And so the Schenk Award was originally for recurve shooters. And then after compounds were brought into the Olympic, excuse me, into the into the world of target archery and world archery, and therefore into the NAA, uh, the Doug Easton Award, which you were the recipient of, was created for honoring compound shooters in the same way. So Correct. it's the shooter of the year, essentially. Basically, yeah. So I would like to have another run at that. Sure. Um, which usually that comes down to, you know, we're all very close indoors. I think Jay Bars, by the way, has 16 of those or something like that. I wouldn't doubt it. Yeah, well, he dominates field. Well, exactly. Know? Yeah. Yeah, usually for us, we're all indoors. We're all close indoors within a few points, you know. Outdoors, there can be some spread there. And then field is where a lot of people don't shoot it because they don't know how or they don't want to compete. You know, it's you get some – usually whoever wins the field championship gets the – Easton Award. Yeah, and I remember a few more than a few years ago now. Um, I, I was show, shooting uh, field nationals down in Arizona with Jay Bars. Uh, finished second. Jay finished first. I don't remember what the gap was, but it was pretty darn substantial. We're talking like <laughs> thirty points, and I shot one of the best rounds I'd ever shot. Yeah. So yeah, the guy was is still um, you know just a genius for field archery. Fields and not too shabby yeah. to the other stuff, but uh, yeah. Field-wise, I think he has 16 national championships in field. Uh, yeah, and a couple world, I think. Too. Oh, yeah, two in the world championships and, uh, and, and you know, against serious competition. Um, field used to be arguably a lot more popular than it is now, mm-hmm. I would say. So you had the Simon Fairweathers of the world shooting field. You had, you know, uh, the Jorn Bierendals, the, mm-hmm. the just legendary field shooters who were at the top of their craft, and uh, and Jay would go out there and crush them. Yeah, I I think it's coming back around too. We're I do starting to see more and more of the top level shooters participating, so that's cool. It's a shame that it's so hard and expensive to televise field archery. It's it's um, a very daunting proposition to put it on TV in a good way. Yeah, it's the most exciting. It's the most. I won't say it's the most exciting form. It is though. 
Um, well, you weren't at Lords in London in 2012. If you were in Lords in London in 2012, you'd say it was the second most exciting. All right, yeah, okay. <laughs> but it uh, it offers the most variety. You know, the the Pro Series archery events that I see on Vimeo, those are fun to watch. I, I hear they do watching. a good job. I've yeah. never seen one of those, but I hear they, they do, do a good job. They do a great job. job. They get a lot of viewers. It's, in fact, I think I'm going to one. So I signed up. I got to find a way to buy a ticket to Brussels. But, yeah, I believe I'm going, so. Well, if you're going to go to fun. Brussels, you might as well just fly to Paris and drive the rest of the way. Okay. By American standards, it's a short drive. As long as I don't have any issues getting back and forth, I'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't stay in Paris and go to Brussels, but. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, that. So we've got our mail-in nationals, which it's kind of fun because, you know, Jesse already shot a five. It's a two-day deal. Jesse shot a 599, 598. So to win indoor nationals all i have to do is back-to-back 599s that's that's it you know haven't practiced but the mail match just you know back-to-back 599s to win yeah so no yeah, big deal yeah that's dumb um <laughs> mail-in tournaments suck yeah you know what would be nice <laughs> mail-in national championships suck mail-in I would tournaments say, have their place mail-in tournaments absolutely have their place but to make Great one a national championship is dumb as a rock and i'll just yes. leave it at that i, I hate that I will say, though, that, you know, it would make a great um, circuit if we could do it. And, and I recognize this is not, you know, realistic maybe in today's uh, environment. But it would have been better if we could have called that a qualifier. And then, then have a national the top, final at the new Chula Vista top Center. Eight from, the top eight from each regional go on. Because you know what that does for you? It creates a stepping stone. Mm-hmm. It gives you something to aspire to. Yep. I've told yep, you before yep. the story of how we used to have a national sports festival, what we called the U.S. Olympic Festival. Yeah. And, you know, making that team was a big deal mm-hmm. and, and a great goal. Now we don't have that intermediate goal. Yeah. Now you're going from maybe state champion to trying to make a world team, and it's not so easy. Right. You've got nothing in between. <laughs> yeah, cause, and, and often state championships aren't contested by the top-level shooters. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, yeah. I, I think our state, our state has arguably some of the best – you know, the the highest level, the highest number, the highest quantity of quality shooters, and none of us go to that stuff. Right. Like we're, we have our state five spot in two weeks. I think maybe one or two of us who are competitive at the pro level will be there. Maybe out of ten, you know. And maybe a guy like Rio might drive down as a guest or something like that. Yeah, shoot as a guest because it's close. Or you know, it's always it's interesting. But yeah, there's no there's no in between and. I look at stuff like what GBR does. You know, they have their national series, and it's a big deal to them. They have their national series finals, which they set up and produce and do a big Well, they've also got for. a very, very lively county versus county yeah. circuit. You know, they've got – so they've got many levels, right, many yeah. stepping stones to get you along the way, plus a well-defined system of ranking, right? So you can be a grand master bowman. I don't know what's below that, but – you know, stuff like that, right? Like, Mark, marksman and you know, make these levels and they have a handicap system. Interesting. Yeah. So it's a little like golf that it's, way. Yeah, like golf or like chess. You can be the grandmaster. Yeah. Yeah. The the phraseology is, is more chess like, I agree. <laughs> the G M B the G M B a Grandmaster Bowman, you know, which is pushing thirteen hundred level for a recurve shooter. Or or even above that. I'm not sure what the Pretty numbers grandmaster. are. Anymore. Yeah. The only um the only thing I know is that uh, they are, man, they have a uh, contentious environment over there, it seems. Really? They like to argue a lot about what they do. It's interesting. Yeah. 
So maybe they, I don't know. Sometimes I like a good old fashioned argument too. Yeah. You know, you know the British, <laughs> the British have had a tough time in the last, uh, I'd say 15 years as far as, I mean, the last British Olympian to medal that I can remember is, uh, gosh, Allison Williamson did very well in the Athens games. So that's 12 years ago. You know, I mean, it's a tough, tough situation over there. They haven't not, they've just not been able to, yeah, they had a great result for a junior shooter at a, at a junior worlds, but not a good, not a good outcome considering how many shooters they've got, you know, about 40,000 shooters mm-hmm. in, the, in, in GBR. And I mean, recurve here, I'm talking recurve mm-hmm. and, uh, I, I just don't understand it. It's interesting. Maybe that's more podcast fodder, you know, some countries some, that haven't uh, reached yeah. their potential. Yeah, France or, comes to mind to a degree. Yeah. Just, uh, why is one area of the world dominate recurve? Well, you're talking about <laughs> yes. Korea, Korea, Japan, you know, Asia in general seems to have a lot more success. Maybe yeah. we'll hold that for another show. Okay. Yeah. That's probably a, a good one for the future. Speaking of the future, Louisville, uh, the indoor NFAA championship is coming I'm up. So and that's a real excited. indoor championship because it's all in one place. Yeah, but it's a five spot, but it's all in one place. Archers against Blueface. Yeah. Even I can shoot a 300. I'm serious. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, what's interesting is I've, I've never made the Vegas shoot off, but I've made the five spot shoot off, which is the same requirements except 30 more arrows. The X in is the, Ve- same, as is the same as a Vegas 10. Yeah. And which is ginormous by world archery standards. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So that's a big tournament this year. I gather there's going to be yep. a good turnout. Always is. And it, you know, it's fun because the shoot off is a little different. It goes from, you know, you got to get in the shoot off, shoot your 120 X's to get in. And then you, you switch to inside out X scoring. So you got to be inside out for it to count. Mm-hmm. So last year I went to, uh, X tens, made a good run at it, shot one completely out of the X <laughs> and, uh, took fourth place. Wow. So, Hey, do you think anybody's going to show up for Vegas in the future with an X 10 in their quiver just for the lucky dog? Matt Sutzman did it this year. But he didn't, he didn't, it didn't pay off for him. No. But yep. it was a strategy. He had yep. that in mind. Yep. Do you think you're admitting to something bad if you yeah, show up with one? Yeah, I think it's bad. It's it's a bad move to psychologically. Don't even bring one in your tube, right? You don't bring it in your equipment. You don't tube. acknowledge the fact nope. that you might be in that lucky dog shoot. Nope. Nope. Sutzman had a, uh, a uh, 899. Yes. Uh, yes, he did. I think. Is that right? Yeah. No. Yes. No. That's that is right. They said he shot 89 out of 90 in the uh, HBO thing. That was the year prior. Oh, was it? Yeah. Okay. I don't know if he did or not, but he Well, he's perfectly capable rating. of shooting a clean score. Yeah. He's done it before. Yeah, he's shot a 120X at mm-hmm. Louisville. So, yeah, I think it uh, just works against you to show up. with. You don't go to a tournament prepared for failure. Exactly. Right? Well, you bring a backup bow. You bring backup equipment as need because that's a different kind of failure. Yeah, that's but self-induced <laughs> failure—that's what you're talking about. That's that's just showing up prepared for the tournament. Yes, unlike some people we know, there are some people we know that have shown up for tournaments at like a World Cup level and had stuff break just before a final. I one guy, a good friend of ours, more than once. All right, well, we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> we'll have to talk about this later. Well, okay, but it's one reason why Martin Damsbo won the Sportsman of the Year award from. Uh, World oh Cup. yeah. <laughs> Because Martin was very generous giving a backup bow to this person we're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yep. Usually, I mean, to be honest, in that situation, 
what I always I always kind of giggle when I see uh, shooters heading out to the medal match and they have two bows on them. I'm like, man, I never bring two. None of the U.S. men bring two bows. The women all bring two bows. The other countries they all bring two bows out. But none of us ever bring two bows. It's always one bow. And it's like, well, if you have a failure, the Koreans always bring two bows. I always look at it like if we have a failure, unless it happens between ends when we're not shooting, the match is over anyways. Because you only got 20 seconds and you're doing straight scoring. Yeah, you've probably missed or, you know, some, I, who knows. I think the most common issue I could foresee is between ends, you turn and catch a blade on your clothes and bend a blade, which in that scenario, the judge will probably give you a little bit of time to bolt on a new blade i don't know the judge might not because there's no timeouts and the dos is not in direct contact with the judge i wonder what would happen i do wonder be interesting i would hope that they would you know give you a little quarter there yeah i don't know i've got a i actually have invented a uh well i didn't invent it but it's patent pending i'll post a photo of my spare blade holder okay so so we have a number of assignments we've got to do yeah there's that video that the other guy wanted to see yes. that you're working on. That's going to be where you take an arrow or arrows and you shoot them vein up and then you shoot the same arrow vein down Correct. to see what the effect is at 50 meters. Yep. You're going to do that video. I'm going to do that. And we are going to do a video um, sooner or later, sooner than later, I think, um, showing point installation, the Eastern way. The Eastern way. And then um, if you have other ideas, folks, kind listeners, for a video that you want to see Steve or myself uh, or anybody else, because we have connections, <laughs> let us know at podcast at eastontp.com. And don't forget, if you enjoy the show, or particularly if you don't enjoy the show, either way, please leave us a review on iTunes if you listen to the show via iTunes, because that will help other listeners find the show more easily. We should ask people like if they would prefer this as like a YouTube drop, Joe Rogan style, film ourselves talking. Oh, we need to do another selfie before we wrap up today. All right. Yeah, we'll do a we'll do a selfie and send that out on on Steve's Twitter. I'm doing here it we right go. now. Here we go. Here here it comes. Steve's got the phone out. Here we are. Done. <laughs> That's pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Steve's going to put that out on Steve Anderson 88. That's just correct Twitter name, right? And also, your Facebook is uh, facebook.com slash big cat archery. And I'm G Techmachov at Twitter, and I have no Facebook, and I'm proud of it. And that about wraps up the show for now. I'm headed off to uh, the World Indoor Championships, and Steve is going to take care of business here in uh, Utah, getting ready for the everything the mail in match yeah. and everything else. <laughs> Actually, keeping the lights on here at Easton, so. Yeah. For myself, George <laughs> Techmachov, and Steve the Big Cat Anderson. End of show. End of show. <laughs>